It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Welcome to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. I'm John, and this is a very exciting week for me because it's, it was my birthday on Tuesday. Um, I'm not going to tell you how old I am. You can probably work that one out from the internet if you're the kind of weirdo who feels the need to know. But yes, so I've been kind of dreading the, the birthday, but then something happened to brighten up my day. Um, some some people who like to mock me on the internet, who who definitely most of them listen to this podcast, sent me a card with a train on it and the caption for a very special grandpa. On the inside of the card, I know I'm being self-indulgent, but come on, I needed an introduction to this one. Um, and, you know, if, to be honest, if, if you can't cope with a measure of self-indulgence from me, then what the hell are you listening to this podcast at this point? But anyway, inside the card, it says, Grandad, we all love you very much. Thank you for brightening up our days with your wisdom and beautiful stories about how life was like under the Attlee government. Your beloved grandchildren, Sarah, Julia, Lee, and Mimi. And on the back, there's a picture of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown holding New Labour's 1997 uh, manifesto. As as I said, I'm, I decided to mention this partly partly to say thank you, because I was a bit miserable, and this did genuinely cheer me up. It's nice to know that someone felt it was worth trolling me to the tune of, of £3 via moonpig.com. Other card providers are available. Also because I just kind of needed some kind of way into this podcast, but also because when we were when we were talking about this on Twitter, and I threatened to talk about it on the podcast, one of those four people said, "Please don't," because my mum listens. So, Mimi's mum, if you're out there, your daughter's card was very nice. Thank you very much. Anyway, the main the main attraction this week, uh, I am speaking to a guy called Usman Haik, who's a sort of, well, he's I think he's an architect, he's a designer, he's very involved in the playable cities movement, and we're going to talk about what makes cities fun. What, I like to get, get people to introduce themselves, so if you could just sort of tell us who you are and what you do, and we'll, we'll take it from there. Sure, I'm uh, Usman Haq, and I'm the founding partner of Umbrellium. I was trained as an architect, and a lot of my work is basically about how people relate to each other and the spaces around them and their neighborhoods and cities, and I'm particularly interested in how technology can kind of connect people together to do things that exceed their expectations. 
That that doesn't sound like a, uh, architecture directly. That sounds like a sort of an adjacent skill. Well, it's interesting you say that because, in a sense, what I'm most interested to do is to challenge the discipline of architecture itself. And so, I'd I'd like to think that all the work I'm doing is is, if you like, contributing to that field. And while I I can understand that for a lot of people the concept of architecture still refers to the built fabric of the city, the sort of the, the, the hard stuff. For me, architecture doesn't exist without the software, if you like, the, the, the sounds and smell and light and temperature and social relationships and kind of network relationships and the interactions between people. That's as much part of architecture as the kind of the, the walls, floor and doors and corridors, if you see what I mean. And, and I suppose that that's why I've tried to kind of focus on, on, on how can we actually start to design that part of the city with the same kind of holistic view that I think architects have, have tried to bring to the kind of design of, of living as well as living space, if you see what I mean. So, so at risk of a, an absolutely terrible pun, can you give us a sort of concrete example of, of the sort of thing that, that Umbrellium does? I suppose it, it, it spans quite a wide range, an unusually uh, wide range, I think, because on the one hand, we, we do sometimes do very short-term, possibly spectacular, mass participation type of events or installations or, or what have you, which might have 10,000 people coming for one night to a city center to not just witness or, or kind of watch, but actually be part of creating some kind of spectacular event. But on the other scale, we're also doing quite kind of core technological infrastructure projects that are permanent long-term parts of the what's known as the Internet of Things uh, infrastructure for cities. So this is the core technology for enabling air quality sensors and temperature sensors and things like that to communicate and make their data available to lots of other systems. So for me, that, that is the kind of continuum of architecture all the way from the temporary and ephemeral to the permanent and systemic. Just give, give, us, give us an example of, of one project from kind of each side of your work. One project which launched just a few days ago is basically an updated pedestrian crossing. The pedestrian crossing, at, you know, as, as you're probably familiar with, was designed several decades ago. Uh, for a city that we, that, that, that's almost of another age. Now that cities are, you know, they're, they're, they're much more busy, many more vehicles, cyclists, pedestrians, all kind of negotiating for space. We basically looked at how can we reimagine that for the 21st century. And we ended up basically creating an interactive road surface where the pedestrian crossing can be displayed at any place uh, any size, any orientation, it can dynamically respond to the locations of vehicles and bicycles and, and people walking. Uh, it can give warning signals in actually embedded in the road surface. Or it could do things like get much wider when there's lots of people trying to cross. So it, it stops being kind of a physical thing and becomes something that can kind of grow and contract and move depending on, on the need of the moment. That's, that's amazing. Right? That's, yeah, and, and of course, you know, the, the, the key thing was to be able to build something that could support the weight of vehicles and deal with mud and rain and that 
felt quite familiar. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't look like some glossy bit of technology. It's a, it looks like a road. It's just that the, that the crossings can kind of re, reconfigure themselves. And of course, this is, uh, it's designed not to be distracting and, and kind of flashy whizzy, but nonetheless, it, it does have this effect that at some times the crossing may not even need to be there at all and it can completely disappear. At other times it can sort of just, you know, essentially just try and make all the different people in and around the crossing much more aware of each other's locations. And what about what about the sort of other Freddier work? Give us an example of, of one of these kind of participatory, uh, pu- participatory <laughs> installations. I got there in the end. Yeah. <laughs> well, so uh, one of uh, this project is, is now about 11 years old, uh, a project called Open Burble where the first time we did it was in Singapore, um, in Padang, which is basically, it's like their, their kind of central, very large public space. What we did there is we basically created a system where several hundred people could come and like a giant Meccano set almost, design and construct and then erect an 18-story structure uh, that was filled with balloons and sensors and colors and lights and things like that. And it then kind of floats up, um, basically, you know, changing the horizon uh, or, 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 or the kind of cityscape. It might just be for, for one night, but it's in many cases the first time that, that any of these members of the public have had that dramatic an effect, if you like, on the on the fabric of the of the city itself. And so that was an example of just getting people together to design to negotiate with each other to kind of go through that process of thinking about you know what is appropriate how do we build the structure what is the formal vocabulary what is it we're trying to achieve all these kinds of things building up uh, uh, this kind of massive thing that we call the burble and then basically also kind of inviting thousands of others because of course it, it becomes a focal point that draws people towards it uh, thousands of others who then have to hold on to this thing to make sure it doesn't fly away because it's, you know, it's basically uh, a massive helium-filled structure. So, so it is, I mean, it sounds inherently temporary. Obviously, you can't keep thousands of people that are hanging on to this thing for That's too right. long, presumably. How, how, long is, how long are we talking here? When we do it, it's, it's just for one night. But it's it, like the, the core experience is that one of having created something. So I, I often think back to somebody's, somebody wrote a, a blog post soon after they were part of the Singapore one that's, that's really stayed with me because um, she wrote about having been part of this thing, didn't talk about it as an architecture or, or even an art project, but just talked about saying, seeing her baby up there, you know, this is something I made that was up there in the sky. And I, I think that is the, that's what it's all about. Actually, for me as a designer, creating something that enables other people to make something of their own that they feel responsible for and accountable to and, you know, kind of have that sense of agency, if you like, participation in in the fabric of this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com 
Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. So this, this is a, a particularly good segue I'm going to make now. It sounds like there's an element of playfulness to some of these projects. And you've also been uh, a judge on the, on the Playable Cities Awards. Do you want to tell us a little bit about about those and how you got involved in that? The Playable Cities, uh, as an organization, as an event, and also as this uh, award competition, they're kind of kindred spirits. I think I first got involved with them when I gave a talk at at one of the conferences a few years back. I think it's interesting to think about what play means within the city and what role it can have in engaging people. And I suppose that this is where I kind of have a, have a shared vision with, with the Playable Cities approach, which is to say, how do we get people kind of meaningfully engaged, which sometimes means an engagement that at first seems a little bit superficial because it is just about something joyful or play. But what's actually going on deeper under this is generating that sense that actually you you do have permission to do things outside of the norm, if you see what I mean. And so I think that, that, that if you look at the kinds of projects that succeed in, in the playable cities, um, especially in the, in the award, you know, they're not just about the sense of joy. They're actually about this kind of sense of opening up to what it means to participate in the city. Um, in other words, it's not all about sort of work, life, use the city in the most efficient way. It's not, it's not just about the transportation issues. It's, it's actually about this kind of joyful celebration of what it means to live with other people and kind of have an emotional response to the space around you. To, to the uninitiated, like the, the term playable cities doesn't necessarily mean a huge amount to those who aren't who aren't familiar with the, the organization based out of Bristol. Can you give us a sense of what what playability actually means in, in a city? What, what is it that these awards are meant to be looking for? Now that you ask me, do you know, I've, I don't think I've ever actually had that specific conversation with, with Claire and the others who, who organize this. So I'm going to tell you what, what it means to me, um, which, which may or may not be the official version. But for me, the concept of playable cities has, has two rather crucial but slightly different aspects. There's playable as in a city that is there for you to thrive on and feel joy in and contribute to and have an emotional connection to. And, and the sense of play that refers to imagination and, you know, the, the, the sort of playground, if you like. That's definitely one side of 
the, the, the kind of projects that, that we see. But for me, there's also the second aspect of playable cities, which is playable in the sense of, you know, a CD being playable or, or, or a record being playable in that city itself is there to be performed. You know, it, it, it comes alive when people are interacting with each other and almost kind of becoming these kind of, if you like, players on the urban stage. So the notion of playable cities for me encompasses those two things together. I mean, t- tell us about, about some of the field in this year's awards. What are the projects that really caught your eye? The project that was awarded, which is called Starlight, Starbright by Guerrilla Dance Project, was particularly interesting because of its kind of poetic nature. The, the idea of essentially deploy, deploying stars around the city that, that, that people can interact with in a number of different ways. Because I don't know where it might be at the moment, because I'm sure they've gone through some conceptual development. But sure. at the time, the idea was that there would be these sort of star-shaped objects that would be stuck to buildings or to, to, to street or to the pavement and that you could then press or or touch in some way and they would start to resonate together and as i say i'm i'm very well aware that that these kinds of projects when when proposed and then when delivered may end up being a little bit different but i think that the key aspect of the project that resonated with me was just the way the project could evoke a sense of wonder and awe and almost universality that uh, uh, you know one of scale that we are part of this kind of universe that that's above us meanwhile we're kind of interacting in the messy city down below as it were it's ba- basically sort of bringing part of the night sky into the fabric of the city is that is that a good way of putting it love thy neighbor was a was another one that i that i enjoyed it it was essentially a project that got people talking about and exploring the city in quite a new way and i believe there was a there was a mobile phone app where you would kind of interact with things that you found around the city. What I liked about that was that this was the, this was something that would encourage people to kind of go and explore neighborhoods that they hadn't necessarily visited before, because it, I, I remember this kind of sense of it almost being a, a treasure hunt for, for, for bits and pieces of virtual uh, information, if you like, embedded in the city that, that you could kind of go and uncover. It feels like this is a common thread here is is the city is a sort of playground almost or, or, or canvas perhaps but just kind of a sort of you know the, the backdrop somewhere where you can play games and have fun with it rather than just sort of treat everything as, as, as just a boring uh, physical infrastructure yeah as i say that there's for me it's crucial to consider both aspects there's one side which is as a playground and there's the second as a stage if you like a, a play a, a performance an idea that we can get up and and kind of meaningfully do something in the city and I, and i think it's important to to kind of keep both of those together because it is the intertwining of those two aspects of of play that makes it so rich as we said at the beginning of this your work kind of involves both both this kind of artistic thread and this practical thread do you think in terms of having ideas about the sort of practical development of the city it's kind of is it useful to be constantly thinking about ideas of 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 play and games and and making things fun i mean does this feed back into the more the more practical side of your work for me definitely it's all part of the same thing ultimately for me the city is people it is about people's interactions with each other and the accretion of those interactions over time and and the serendipities and you know, all the things that make the city valuable for me are the unexpected 
aspect of it, the, 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 the stuff that you, the novelty, if you like. What makes a city kind of livable might be all the practical stuff, all of the trains being on time or what have you. But I think it's, it's kind of important to, to remember that there are plenty of places in the world where transportation is run on time for decades <laughs> and they're not just waiting for a technological solution to make things, make transport more efficient. Some of the practical stuff that we sometimes think technology can solve actually is not a technological problem. It's a, it's a, it's a much different kind of problem that needs to be tackled. And so if you get back to this idea that, that the city really is interactions between people and, and especially these kind of serendipitous novel interactions, then really you need to start thinking, I think, when you're designing aspects of the urban fa fabric, how do we preserve unexpectedness and heterogeneity, if you like? You know, the, the kind of the spontaneousness that really go, gets to the heart of what makes the city valuable. Just to kind of finish, can you can give us what, what's the most magical thing you've ever seen technology used for in a city? This is not exactly a technological thing, but I think one of the most beautiful magical things is actually an image from streets in New York when I used to live there. And this is actually, the more I think of it, this is perhaps not even answering your question. You know, when the temperature gets high and somebody opens up a fire hydrant and the magical look on people's faces playing in the water, drenched in the sun and the rainbows that the mist creates on that street corner or what have you. That for me is one of the most magical experiences. Do you know um, Granary Square in the King's Cross redevelopment? I do, yes. Well, they've got and the, it's, it, which, which is, you know, it's a, that's, in some ways it's a horrible example of what's known as, you know, a private public space and it's part of this big privately developed estate masquerading as public space but nonetheless they've done it very beautifully they have these sort of fountains there which uh, which you need to go down there on a sunny weekend and there'll be there'll be like families with their kids literally playing in the fountains that's right so that there was is something magical yeah. about that you know so that was actually created by fountain workshop who we worked with um actually a few years before that in bradford so i i was it's actually something i've kind of played with using light and mist and, and fountains. Why, why does this matter? What do we lose if we don't think about the city in this way? You know, we're, we're, we're facing a very difficult period in, the, in, in urban design, development, deployment, whatever you want to call it, because as our cities are becoming more crowded with people, as we are starting to you know, frankly, question some of our democratic institutions and the consequences of them. You know, as we are starting to face the effects of the environment and the financial world, if you like, kind of impacting the way that we relate to each other, the question of how we're going to live together, how we are going to decide what future we want, how we're going to, who is going to make the decision about what future that we get, how we're going to be able to ensure that the future that we want is actually created. All of these for me are profoundly urban questions. And one very core aspect of that necessarily has to be that we are able to, to decide these things together, that we're able to design our cities together. We're able to design our cities to include for the fact that we are doing things together, if you like. So that's why 
all of this is 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 fundamental. It's not just about the, the the joyful side. It's actually about finding the ways that we can work together and interact together to make decisions about what we want the city to be now and in the near future and in the longer term future. Thanks as ever to Usman for, for coming onto the podcast and for putting up with having to talk to me down a fairly annoying Skype connection there. Um, just a very quick piece of housekeeping before we go. Uh, I said on last week's podcast that uh, Stephanie would be back next week. I, it turns out I was lying to you. Stephanie is Stephanie is coming back. We've already recorded that. We, we've had lots of fun doing it. Um, but I'm going to push that back a week because I have something else to use next week. I have to use before the guy I'm talking to switches jobs and so is no longer allowed to appear on, on random podcasts. Uh, I'm going to be talking to James Reed, who's about to stop being the political editor of the Yorkshire Post about what the hell's going on in Yorkshire and why why that fine county can't get it together to get a devolution deal. So if there's something to look forward to, we, I will be talking to Stephanie uh, the week after. Okay, I think that's everything. Um, if anyone else wants to send me any novelty cards through the post, you can find the address online. Cheers, lads. See you next time. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com